Well, once again, welcome to Four Corners. My name's Ben. I am so glad you're here. Will did a, a great impression of Scott Stapp, the lead singer of Creed. A uh, little interesting uh, side note that maybe Greg will share with you one point, uh, at one point. Greg, my brother, who is the executive pastor here, he went to school with Scott Stapp, to college with him, and, and it's rumored that Scott Stapp actually hit on Greg's girlfriend, who became Greg's wife, Amy. And I just want to declare for everybody, Greg won, um, because he is the better man, without a doubt. All right, um, true story. I think you, you could ask him about that. All right, so uh, we're going to do the Apostles' Creed. Now, let me just tell you why we're going to do this in just a second, but I want to clean up just two things from, from blurred lines. One is, is expressing my appreciation to you. You understand that there are a lot of churches in America um, that would not allow their pastoral staff, wouldn't give them enough trust, or things would blow up if they honestly tried to deal with what the Bible had to say about sex, relationships, marriage, love. And you guys, on the other hand, kind of in, in opposition to what a lot of churches would have done, you guys embraced it, you engaged, you looked at the scripture honestly, you looked at your lives, you, you gave prayer requests, you asked questions. And I just want to tell you how grateful the staff and I are to have a group of people like you who trust us. That uh, our commitment to you is we will always go to God's word and hold it as authoritative, and we will look to it for wisdom in life. And you have evidently believed that and uh, have, given, have given us then a lot of latitude to deal with stuff. And then, then the, the, the second piece of that before we jump into our Apostles' Creed series. Um, last week, I made the decision not to post what we did on stage online. And uh, that was a hard decision for me to make. And I wanted to just uh, give you the one piece. And I don't suspect everybody is going to understand this. And it's okay if you disagree with me, but... I made the decision sitting uh, right here next to my wife to share some things about our family and things that we do. And uh, I'm not ashamed of those things. I'm very proud of those things. But they're private things in our family. And I shared them with you, people I trust and people who have loved my family now for 10 years. And you're gracious to us. You treat us kindly. You give us lots of room to be human. I don't want to put that stuff online to a group of people who hear, and we have dozens and dozens and dozens of people a week who watch our messages online, literally from around the world. And they don't know us. They don't know our family. And I felt like it exposed our kids uh, at a level that I'm not comfortable exposing them to people who I don't know what their heart for me, for our church, or for my kids are. And so maybe at some point over the next few weeks, we'll edit that stuff out, and we'll put the rest of it online. But um, just so you know, and I don't mean this to sound arrogant anyway, but I don't need you to agree with me on that. Uh, I am the only person in this church with my wife that have the job to protect our family. You don't need to carry that concern. But that's what that was about, and I hope you'll be gracious with us um, as we move forward as a family trying to lead this church. And then you'll give me a lot of room to be a dad who really feels that my job is to protect and, and honor my kids. So, so that's what that's all about. All right. <clears throat> Thank you. Thank you for that. So, uh, with that said, uh, I want to talk to you about why we're doing this message series and what we're not going to do and what we are going to do. So we have a handful of days between now and Easter. And Easter is the Super Bowl of the church. It really is. It comes around once a year and it celebrates what is the, the core of our faith. It's a big, big deal. Around here, we make it a big deal by every year we ask you, hardcore, please invite your friends to come to Easter. Studies have shown that if you'll invite a friend, some 60% of them will come to church with you if you'll give them a formal invite. Please come to church with me. We like to say it around here this way. Please meet me at the lobby 
at, and then you need to give them a time and come to church with me. I, I'll meet you there, show you around. You won't have to look for things, show you what to do with your kids. Please meet me in the lobby, come to church with me on Easter. So that's one of the ways we honor Easter. This year, we're going to try to honor Easter by adding a, a layer that we've done to varying degrees over our history, but we want to be crystal clear this time. I want to take some time and make sure that we're preparing our hearts personally, even as we're ramping up our temperature on evangelism and witnessing for the Lord. So we're going to take the handful of weeks between now and Easter, about 40 days or so, give or take, depending on the weekends, you know how you count those, about 40 days or so to drill down on a few essential truths about Christianity. This thing called the Apostles' Creed has some archaic old language in it. Uh, one of the words, as you saw the intro there, was uh, this phrase that we believe in the Holy Catholic Church. Y- you may not know this, but the word Catholic simply means universal. And the word Catholic was chosen to define a denomination because it was seen as the universal church. So we're going to talk about the major tenets of the Christian faith, but I don't want you to think that this is some dry um, regurgitation of a list of beliefs. Far from that. Over the last few weeks, as I have tried to dig into this material in a new and fresh way, I've had one question on my mind. It's this, it's pretty simple. God, if we really believe this is true, how does that impact our lives as we walk with you? God, if we really believe these things are true, if these are the things that Christians have believed for the last 2,000 years, if this is one of the only documents, if not the only documents, that all brands of Christianity agree with, largely, what does that belief, what does it do to our life, to our life of faith with you? This is a good question to ask of yourself. If what I believe is truly what I believe, how does it really impact my life? How does it really get worked out? So we're just going to take some time over the next few weeks and raise up big picture issues. We're not going to get into minutiae. We're not going to get into those dividing lines that have separated Christians, that Christians have fought over, Christians have died over. Those are important lines, and they're worth fighting about. It's just not our purpose today. Our purpose is to hold to the core truths, and we're going to focus on one key phrase from the Apostles' Creed. You had it there on the intro. I won't read it to you again, but let's go to that first line. Here's what it says. I believe in God the Father Almighty, maker of heaven and earth. I believe in God the Father Almighty, maker of heaven and earth. In fact, that's as far as we're going to go today. Now, I want to deal with one piece, and then I want to talk about the so what. This phrase in the Apostles' Creed is not found explicitly in the Bible. You're not going to find it word for word in the Bible. What, What the writers of the Creed did is they looked at Jesus' words in Matthew chapter 28 at the Great Commission. And Jesus gave the mission of the church, go into all the world and make disciples, baptizing them in the name of the Father, the Son, and the Holy Spirit. That phrase, the Father, the Son, and the Holy Spirit, uh, introduced people, submerged people into a belief in the Father, Son, and Holy Spirit. The writers of the Apostles' Creed, long before it was the Apostles' Creed, when it was just a few ideas, in about 170 AD, they took those three words, Father, Son, and Holy Spirit, and they said, well, well, exactly what does that mean? What, what, are, what is the essential thing to know about God the Father? What are the essential statements to know if we're going to baptize people into his name? And, and they need to understand it. What are the essential things to understand about Jesus? 
What's the essential truth to know about the Holy Spirit? Not all the things you could know. Not all the mysteries we could turn over. Not all the beautiful nuggets we could mine if we dug deep. But what are the essential, on the surface, bare minimum stuff that we should know? And so in about 170 AD, there were some early language around what becomes the Apostles' Creed. And between about 170 AD and 320 AD, the Apostles' Creed in the form we have it now is largely completed. Some 12 lines, a handful of words, that have summed up for a couple thousand years the basic beliefs about Christianity. If you go to our website and look at our church's beliefs, we elaborate a little bit more. Just kind of what makes us a little unique among all the churches throughout time and space. Again, these are great discussions to have. But I want us to drill down on that first phrase. What does it mean when we say, I believe in God the Father Almighty, maker of heaven and earth. And before I can explore fully what it means, because now, here we are a couple thousand years later, there's a lot of emotion, ideas, thought, and history associated with this phrase, I believe in God the Father Almighty, maker of heaven and earth. In fact, just a few weeks ago, maybe some of you watched it online, there was a big debate between a, a, a kind of a pop icon of, psycho, uh, of, of science and a pop icon of theology, Ken Ham versus Bill Nye the Science Guy, having a debate on creationism. And man, I, if I've ever seen Facebook and Twitter uh, light up, Christians um, and, and non-Christians really engaged. I mean, this thing blew the internet up. Uh, it was an, a webcast. You could, you could you know, sign on and watch it. You could buy tickets. Tickets disappeared in like, I, I, think, I think I read it was seven minutes from the time tickets were available online. They were all sold. And so people gathered right across our bridge in northern Kentucky, and they sat in that room, and they heard these guys debate. And when it was all over, the parts that I saw, I thought, you know, in terms of just debate, I, I've done debate uh, in high school, that sort of stuff, a little bit in college. In terms of just debate, I don't know who really won. I don't, cause I don't know if there was enough even commonality to decide what... It seemed like from the very get-go, they were on complete and opposite sides. Well, our, our statement today deals a little bit with it, and I want to give you something that is sure to frustrate some of you because I won't go far enough, and it's sure to make some of you feel great because I don't go far enough. All right, so um, I believe in God the Father Almighty, maker of heaven and earth. I want to focus on that phrase, maker of heaven and earth, for just a moment. I've been in the church since I was five years old, and Christians love to argue they argue because they believe deeply. They argue because they're passionate. It's not just idle arguing. It's not just pointless um, ideas being thrown around and people wanting to sound smart. It's legitimate, honest debate that needs to happen in a community of faith. But there are two segments of Scripture that they love to argue about more than anything else. I call them the bookends. Now, for the next few minutes, this is just Ben talking, and then we're going to jump right into God's Word, and it's going to be crystal clear when I shift, okay? So, Genesis chapter 1 through 12 is one bookend of the Bible, right? The far extreme, you know, if you go over here. And then Revelation chapter 3 to the end of the Bible, about chapter 22, is the other bookend of the Bible. The beginning and the end. That's why I call them bookends, all right? You, you tra you're tracking with me so far? These are the things that people who love to argue in the church, God put those pieces in the Bible because, because people... They, they love, it's their identity. They love to fight. They love to argue. And they love to go to the bookends all the time. Fighting about what happened at the beginning of time. Fighting about what's going to happen at the end of time. 
If you're good at articulating your opinion, you can put it in a book, and every single year, books that deal with the beginning and the end are among the best-selling Christian books of all time. Now, if you've hung around here for any length of time at all, you'll know that I don't spend a lot of time, and from this stage, we don't spend a lot of time on the bookends. Are they important? Yes. We're going to talk about them in just a moment for a little bit. They're extremely important. As a church, we've decided that we're going to deal with the stuff in the middle, largely. The stuff that leads all the way up to Jesus, the center of history, B.C., A.D., the center of history, the, the, the seminal moment in human history when Jesus rises from the dead. I mean, that's what Easter's all about anyway. And then we would deal with the other stuff on the shelf, which is the gospel writers talking about Jesus, the book of Acts talking about what his followers did, the writings of Paul as he tries to unpack within the local church the things Jesus said and did. That's where we spend about 95% of our time if you look over the last 10 years. From about Genesis chapter 13, which is the beginning of the story of Abraham, all the way up through Revelation about chapter 3, which is before it gets into all the, the beast and the image and, and all that other stuff, all right? Now, these things are essentially important. Here's one of the reasons why I like the Apostles' Creed as a way of just summing up our faith. The Apostles' Creed sets for us the bare minimum expectation of the role of God at creation. And it doesn't get into what is a fair debate, the mechanical ways in which God created or didn't create. It doesn't even tell you exactly how to interpret all those passages, although how you interpret them matters. The Apostles' Creed makes the statement that we believe in God the Father, who is almighty, and he made the heavens and the earth. This phrase that he made the heavens and the earth, the maker of heaven and earth, tells us a couple of very key things about our Father. Now I'm beginning to switch to pure theology, straight from God's word. Our Bible reveals in Genesis chapter 1 through 12, and in Genesis chapter 13 and forward, that God is a very powerful God. That there is no reserve in him when it comes to power. He has access to it all. And God can do whatever God wants to do. In fact, the only limitation on God is the limitation that integrity demands. He cannot lie. And then any limitation he chooses to put on himself. Outside of those things, God can do whatever God wants to do. It's part and parcel of the definition of being God, you can do what you want to do. Right? It's one of the clearest signs that you're not God. Is that you really can't do whatever you want to do and have no ramifications happen to you. God, God can do that. And in this power, this statement, and the Bible affirms this over and over again. We're going to see how Jesus does it in a moment. This statement affirms that all of the created world, the earth and the heaven above it. Now, we're not talking here about the, the heaven that people go to when they, when they die and they've accepted Jesus as their Lord and Savior. But in the heavens that we see, when you look up the starry sky, that the heavens and everything above it, which in the ancient world, the moon had not been walked on, there was no full understanding of the way the sun and the planets and the stars revolved. There, there was none of that. And there was just great mystery when they looked up. Is, is that, that blue thing, is that water up there? Is that water going to fall on us? And there's a lot of confusion about what the created order was. But this statement affirms one of the primary points of Genesis that when you argue Genesis 1 and 12 so much gets lost. 
that God is above his creation. That it all flowed from him. He was the maker of the thing. So here's the essential point when it comes to Christianity and to non-Christian worldviews as it relates to the beginning of the earth. Is the whole thing the design of God or is the whole thing completely random? Is the whole created order the design of God or is the whole created order completely random? The Bible affirms that the created order is the design of God. It flows from his mind out of his power because he is all-powerful. And Christians have, since that statement was agreed upon way back in 170 to about 320 AD, they have affirmed that over and over and over again. Now within that framework, that it flows from the design and the power and the character of God, this created order is not random, which means, of course, all kinds of implications. Your life isn't random. You're not simply the function of two people that hooked up one day and boom, here you are. No matter what your parents described you as, you can't be an accident because the entire created order flows from the hand of God, out of his power, out of his integrity, out of his mind, out of his order. And so within that framework of the God who is the maker of all things seen and unseen, that's one of the ways the Bible describes it. There's a variety of opinions about how mechanically that happens. And in our church, we think you should debate that. You should hold strongly that. The position we take that I'm trying to just elevate here a little bit is that the God behind creation has power, he has order, he has design, and that has huge implications for the way we view him and how we respond to him how we understand him, and it has huge implications for how we see our own role in this world. No matter how you feel in this very moment, your life has purpose, even if you can't see it. Even if it's covered over by hurt, shame, disappointment, the opinions of others, your economic situation, your, your relational status, the ambiguity, uh, ambiguity in your career, your life has purpose. Every human life has purpose. That's part and parcel of a healthy, fully developed theology of creation. Again, there's a lot of other things we could say about creation. As a church, we've chosen not to engage that debate fully, other than to affirm that this created order has purpose because it flows from a God who, had, who, who serves as the maker, the designer, the architect of creation. Do I have opinions about the other stuff? Yep. I'm going to tell you before we ever talk about them, I'm right and you're wrong. But when we talk about them, I'm going to love you anyway, even if you're wrong. And I hope you'll love me where I'm wrong, even though, of course, I'm really not. Um, I'm only being facetious, but isn't that the attitude we get? Genesis chapter 1 through 12 and Revelation chapter 3 through 22 is, is what I would like to call the most the most speculative begging parts of the Bible. There's so many gaps. We have to fill it in, and we try to fill it in with integrity and be consistent across the board. But people of faith can do that. Now, I'm not saying it's unimportant. I'm just saying that you can debate them to such a degree that you miss the key point. 
that God is above his creation, that he designed this world with purpose and order. And being above creation means that he literally is the Lord or the God or the supreme king of all things. And when you read the Bible, this is the point about creation that gets affirmed over and over and over again. There is a God, you're not him. He created you, whether you accept that or not. That is the consistent message of creation. That this God is powerful, and he wants a relationship with you. This is what we get in the first phrase of the Apostles' Creed. I believe in God the Father. Let's pause for just a moment. The Father. This is the most frequently chosen word of God in the New Testament. In the Old Testament, less than a half a dozen times is God defined as the Father. But when Jesus shows up on the scene, he changes it. He's no longer the God who is behind the thunder. He's no longer the God who's stronger than all the other gods that people believe in. The uber God, if you will. He's no longer simply the God that speaks in prophecies. He's the Father. And this word for God identifies this relational nature that he wants to have. And when Jesus shows up on the scene, the relational nature of the creator of the universe, that layer of his personality gets revealed like never before. And it changes everything. It changes everything. So in the Apostles' Creed, in a moment you're going to see from the pages of God's Word, there is this profound tension that I want to put on you for just a moment between the deeply relational God that loves you, wants to be in a relationship with you, walk with you, cares for you. I believe in God the Father. And then the very next word, Almighty. I believe in God the Father who wants to know me, loves me, cares for me. I never hurt that he doesn't see it. None of my tears, the Bible tells us, are wasted. Everything on my mind, he cares about. He invites me to cast my cares on him because he is a loving father who is also almighty. And that should scare, that should scare us a little bit. The, the Bible wouldn't use the word scare. It would use the word fear as an awe, as in blow your mind, as in wow. This father who has drawn near, who's revealed himself, wants to know me deeply. And he has all the power. What kind of power? The power behind everything you see and don't see. The kind of power that affords him the right to make the world. You're the creation, not the creator. That God loves you deeply. And when Jesus shows up on the scene, he walks in this tension, highlighting both regularly. And you don't see it any more clearly than you see it in the Lord's Prayer. Do you remember the Lord's Prayer? We're about 60% Catholic in this room. Many of us have that background. This would be called the Our Father. When you said a word you weren't supposed to say and you went to confession, you probably had to say this three or four times. Right? You kind of wash your mouth out with the Lord's Prayer, if you will. That was your penance. And it gets, it gets quoted so many times that sometimes it loses its punch. But in the Lord's Prayer, Jesus beautifully walks out this tension that we find also in the Apostles' Creed that I want us to struggle with for just a few minutes today. I want us to, to think about, to let it, the truths of it wash over us for just a few moments. Matthew chapter 6, verse 9 through 10, our passage for today. 
This is how it begins. This, then, is how you should pray. Now, before I read the prayer, let me just give you the context. The disciples, who knew much more Bible than we know, who were better prayers than most of us will ever be, even before they were following Jesus, because it was just in the culture. They knew the words to say in their prayers. They understood the scriptures more than most of us will ever understand. In that day, it was the Old Testament. They had memorized most of the book of Psalms, all 150 chapters. These folks knew how to pray. The disciples, though, after watching everybody pray, after looking at their own life with prayer, they look at Jesus one day and they say, hmm, would you teach us to pray? In other words, there's something about the way you pray that doesn't line up with what we already understand, that doesn't line up with our tradition, that doesn't line up with what we see other people doing. You pray like we don't pray. Would you teach us to pray? Now, 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 I don't want to offend you here. Prayer is a huge deal in the Bible. And this attitude of the disciples, teach us to pray, I don't see it in the church. I don't see it in our church. I don't see it in the churches I grew up in. I don't see this attitude much at all. Teach us to pray. I'm just going to throw out an idea. It's a sub-point I'm making today, not my key point. You can disagree with me. I'm going to throw out this idea for just a moment and say that I think the reason why prayer has fallen on hard times in most of our lives, not all, I'm sure you're the exception, I won't even argue with you. You are the exception, of course. But in many people's lives, I deal with the reason prayer has fallen on hard times is because nobody has ever taught you how to pray. I was around prayer a lot growing up, and few people actually taught me how to pray. Few, I've been in a couple of environments where somebody actually said, no, 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 here's how to pray. And yet the disciples begged Jesus, would you teach us how to pray? They already knew how to pray. They had already been in the culture. They were immersed in a prayerful culture. But it wasn't connecting for them. So they come to Jesus and they say, would you teach us how to pray? And then Jesus then begins to talk about prayer. And about verse 9, he says, this then is how you should pray. And he gives us the Our Father or the Lord's Prayer. And it's not a prayer to be repeated, but it does contain principles. And in the first couple lines is the one I'm trying to get us to think about today. Here's how Jesus says we should pray. Our Father. Caring, loving, concerned, intimate and close, real, available, knows, understands our Father. Jesus spoke Aramaic, most likely, best we can tell. It was Abba, Father. Abba, the first words that, that a child learns to speak and refers to his dad, Abba, Abba. Daddy God. This is very different from the culture of the day. This is the approachable God. Not just the God who speaks from the thunder. Not the God who strikes people dead who don't believe in him. Not the God who opens up the ground. Not even the God who gives the law only, but the God who cares deeply. When you pray, here's the beginning point to understand, to know, to embrace, a belief to have that impacts your reality. When you pray, you're talking to a God who cares, who understands, who loves you. In fact, Jesus just a few sentences earlier said, in fact, he already knows what's on your heart even before you bow your head and whisper a few quiet words. He already knows. Our Father. And then there's this next phrase, our Father in heaven, way above, 
out there, far away, above it all, the one who made it to begin with, our Father who we can't see tangibly, who cares deeply but is so out there. So in the first line of the Lord's Prayer, you have this tension of the great and awesome loving God and the great and powerful God who deserves nothing but awe and reverence, but doesn't want us so afraid of him that we can't draw close. And then Jesus teases it out a little bit. Our Father in heaven, hallowed be your name. That simply means holy, separate, different than us, better than us, higher than us. The beginning point of prayer, Jesus said, if you want to learn how to pray, if you want to take your belief and make it real in your life, the beginning point of that is to acknowledge the character of our Father, of God, who loves and cares and has all power and wisdom. And so the posture of prayer isn't one where you come with great knowledge, even your own agenda, your own concerns, the beginning point of intimate contact with God that transforms us from just people who believe things into people who live integrity-filled lives in the middle of our belief is this humble acceptance of the character of God. And for some of you today, here's what you need to hear. God cares deeply. And as we did build lives over the last few weeks for some of you, and I don't mean to be too graphic, but it was like peeling scabs off of old wounds, and you were aware of mistakes and pain, things you did, things that happened to you, things that happened to people you loved, things you wish you could undo. I heard a lot of regret in the, in the, in the communications. And for you today, you need to know you have a heavenly Father who loves you deeply, who cares for you, who is available to you, who will walk with you. You will never be alone. And some of us are facing huge hurdles. Other people don't think that they're huge. And objectively, they may or may not be huge, but they're huge to you, and they're real. Here's what you need to know about God today. He is powerful. There is nothing too big for our God He has the power to not only take your past sins and throw them away. That's pretty powerful. He has the power to walk with you to break the bondage of those sins and the memory of those sins that hold you back. He has the power to help you overcome economic challenges, relational issues, ugly marriage stuff, dysfunction between you and your kids, you and your parents. He is all-powerful. And that's why even the very mention of his name is holy. This is the God of the Bible. This is the God that the Apostles' Creed tried to put in a sentence. I believe in God the Father, the Almighty One, the one so powerful he made the heavens and the earth with design and purpose. And then Jesus, when he continues to kind of unpack this consistent theme in the Bible. His next sentence in verse 10 says, all right, if you're the caring and loving and all-powerful God, here's what I want to ask for. Before I get to me, before I get to my stuff, here's what I want. I want your kingdom to come. I want your will to be done here on earth where I live, even as it happens where you are. 
Jesus said, are you going to teach you how to pray? pray? Here's the deal. You want to understand what I believe that's impacted my life? You want to understand how I see the way the universe is unfolding? Here it is. Here it is. You're the father who cares deeply, and yet you never gave up one bit of your power. Both of them are wells I can run to to refresh me in my time of need. Both of them I can trust completely, wholly dependent upon you. In fact, you're so special, God, even the very mention of your name. And if that's true, then it naturally follows this key idea that will impact the way you pray. Before I get to God, thank you for this day. Now, Lord, here's my list of what I want. I need you to touch Jill because her attitude towards me hasn't been great lately. And I got this financial thing. Oh, and as I'm driving through the parking lot, I'd like a parking spot near the door, please, Jesus. Before I get to the list of things I want, here's the beginning point of prayer. The focus on God and then a deep, deep hunger for his will to be done first. For his will to be done unfettered. For his will to be done in on earth where I live like it's done in heaven where he's the king. And later on in this chapter, Jesus unpacks the same idea this way. He deals with this theme in chapter 6 about four different ways. So in chapter 6, verse 33, he says it this way, not in the context of prayer, but dealing with the same thing. He says this, you want to know how to live the life with God? You want to be ready for the full meaning of Easter? You want to live your belief like never before? Here's the key for you. Seek first the kingdom of God. Seek it when? First. Why? Because God's awesome. God's big. God cares. Even the mention of his name is holy. And his will is going to get done, so come under his will. Seek first the kingdom of God and his righteousness, his right doing, his right thinking, his right being, the ways of God, the wisdom of God, and all this other stuff that you're concerned about. All these other things, that's going to be given to you as well. But the beginning point of intimacy with God is acknowledging his character and then submitting yourself under him. And here's a key point for today. He cares. In fact, God cares so much that he's more interested in your development than he is in your simple comforts. And sometimes he'll afflict your comfort to develop you. So let me ask you, in what areas of your life do you feel the tension to submit to God's will for your life? There's no tension? There's no tension. Really? Let me just challenge you today that Jesus felt tension on this earth to submit to the will of the Father. When he raises Lazarus from the dead, he prays a 20-second prayer. But on the night before he's crucified, he prays all night. As he chooses to submit his will under the will of the Father. All night. Prayed so hard that the Bible says the sweat became like drops of blood as he wrestled with his own desires to submit them to the heavenly father that could be trusted, who cared, because he looked at what was ahead of him and he said, I don't really want to do this. But God, you can be trusted here. And he wrestled with his will. This is the thing that attracted the disciples. Not the words he used, not the length of his prayers, not the formulaic way he approached saying them, but this humility, this awesomeness of God and the humility he used when he spoke and interacted with the awesome God. When you go to God, are you willing to lay your will aside and elevate his? 
the more time you spend bringing your will under God's will, what you already know to do, the less time you'll have to spend on the other stuff. It's the way prayer really works. In fact, this is the beginning point of authentic, real, honest, life-changing prayer. Let me ask you another question. What attitudes or beliefs do you need to release in order to submit to God's will, the God who cares and is all-powerful? And here's a clarifying thing for me. Are you convinced that God can ask you to submit to him and he will still help you with the issues in your life? This is the thing that the Apostles' Creed is trying to get to. I genuinely, wholeheartedly believe in God, my Father, the Almighty One, the One who made the heaven and the earth, which means He can take care of my life. So rather than coming to Him just with my list, a big part of my coming to Him is consumed with me dealing with my heart and what resides in it, the will I keep fighting for. I think as we get our hearts ready for Easter, I'll just speak for me. As I get my heart ready for Easter, I have some business to do with my Father, who is almighty, about my heart, my will. I'm learning in a fresh way how to pray. Now, a pastor's in an awkward place because he has to regularly ask, is this just for me? Or did God put this on my heart for us? You don't have to agree with me, and I'm sure you're the exception. I believe God has put this on my heart for us. And over the next few weeks, we're going to unpack the Apostles' Creed, but not in some dry way. I want us to dig down on the character and nature of God and ask ourselves clearly, if what I believe is what I really believe, how does it impact my life? And today, I want to give you a chance to deal with the way you see and respond to your Heavenly Father. Not my will, but yours be done. When I come to you with my list of things I want, I want to deal with my heart and not just ask you for stuff. I want the fact that you care and are powerful to impact everything that I think and know and feel and do. I want to ask you something. Will you go on this journey with me? Will you take the next few weeks, and next week as we deal with the character of Jesus, and then we deal with the work of the Holy Spirit, and then we deal with the church, and then we deal with the afterlife over the next few weeks as we get ready for Easter, would you just come and be willing to be challenged, to open your heart and say, all right, I don't even know if I agree with Ben, but I'm willing to be challenged from God's word. I think if you'll do that over the next 40 days or so, and when we come to Easter and we've been inviting our friends, we'll be more prepared than ever for the meaning of Easter to hit us squarely and leave us changed. Let's take out our Connect cards right now and take a few steps together. I want to give you a chance right now to accept Jesus, God's pathway to relationship as your Lord and Savior, to confess you're a sinner and accept his forgiveness, not because of anything you've done, but because Jesus gave his life on a cross and was resurrected from the dead. If you want to do that, check next step A, and we'll communicate with you about that. Put the card in the offering bucket when it comes by. We're going to pray in a moment. I'm going to give you a chance to use your words or borrow mine and look up to God and say, God, I'm a sinner. Forgive me. I want you to be the Lord of my life. Or how about next step B? You want to be baptized. Baptism is a way of saying you die to yourself when you go down. 
and you're being raised to life with Christ. It's the beginning of a relationship. It doesn't mean you have it all together. If you'd like to know more or get baptized, check the box, put it in the offering bucket. When it comes by, and we'll communicate with you. Or how about next step C? To memorize this verse from the Bible. Seek first the kingdom of God and his righteousness, and all these things will be added to you. How about next step D? Pray this prayer. Here's the, here's the one. Here's the one that I'm doing. Each day, God, where you lead me, I will follow. Where you lead me, I will follow. God, I have an agenda. I have a will. But you're the Father who cares. You're the Father who knows. You're the one that can be trusted. So where you lead me, I will follow. Now, how about next step E? Start making plans now to go ahead and invite a friend to meet you in the lobby for 4C. We're calling it Chocolate Easter. That'll be described, described to you a little bit later, all right? Let's pray about these things, and then we'll go. Heavenly Father. Thank you so much for your grace and your mercy. God, we love you. You care for us. You're powerful. God, right now, some of us are doing real business with you. We're acknowledging we're a sinner, and we're asking Jesus to save us. Lord, others of us, we're opening up our hearts to consider your will, the God who cares and is powerful, to consider your will above our own. God, I pray for us as a church over these next few weeks as we get ready for Easter, that we wouldn't just be hot about evangelism. We would grow deeper roots even as we do what you called us to do. I pray it in your name, the name of Jesus, the strong and holy Son of God. Amen and amen.